0: Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. everyone and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and my guest today is Alice Rothschild. Alice is a physician, author and filmmaker who practiced OBGYN for almost 40 years. Until her retirement, she served as assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Harvard Medical School. She writes and lectures widely And she has focused her interest in human rights and social justice on the Israel-Palestine conflict since 1997. She's the author of Broken Promises, Broken Dreams, Story of Jewish and Palestinian Trauma and Resilience, On the Brink, Israel and Palestine on the Eve of the 2014 Gaza Invasion, and her latest book is Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine. She directed a documentary film, Voices Across the Divide, and is active in Jewish Voice for Peace. She just returned from her latest trip to the region, and I am very pleased to have her with us. Welcome, Alice. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I must say that this was one of the most difficult books I have ever read because it was very personal for me, and we'll go into the reasons for that down the line. But first tell me why a nice Jewish girl from Boston became a passionate activist for the Palestinian people.
1: Well, I think, you know, I did start out in a very traditional Jewish home. I went to Hebrew school three days a week, had a bat mitzvah. Um, You know, we put quarters in the box to buy trees in Israel and make the desert bloom. And I went into it when I was 14, and it was this blissful family pilgrimage. Uh, but I'm also a child of the 60s, so I became much more involved in political analysis and fighting the Vietnam War and feminism. And uh, I discovered that I hadn't learned much about colonialism and imperialism and all those kinds of things. So as I became an adult, I became much more interested in how the world works and looking at all of those forces. having this kind of internal disjunction between my childhood love of Israel, which was this, you know, mythical, fabulous place. It was, um, you know, the ashes rising out of the Holocaust. It was all of those things. And then there was the adult me with my political analysis. Um, and so at some point I discovered that there were a lot of other... Um, sort of Jewish progressives who were having these kind of uh, issues and a group of us in Boston decided to try to figure this out. So um we started a Jewish Palestinian dialogue group and that was an incredible education for us because we were meeting with Palestinians, and I actually realized I'd never actually met an Arab person. Um, And we also were meeting with progressive Israelis, and these folks really educated us. And this began a whole journey. So we started um, sharing what we were learning with community activities in the Boston area, um, and we were very quickly blacklisted in our communities. And um, so a number of us were trying to figure out, this is really hard. Difficult stuff. How can we talk about it? And we realized we were all physicians, you know, a little subgroup and we decided to start um, a health and human rights delegation to uh, the region and to go and see for ourselves and work with different groups. And that started in 2003 and I started going in 2004 and I've been there almost every year since and it's grown way beyond our initial uh, efforts and uh, we did this until last year and um, you know I've continued to go without this group but it was my um, entry into a very intimate and personal look at the realities on the ground.
0: What do you think were the main divergences between the story that we were brought up on and the story that you discovered on the ground?
1: Well, you know, I grew up believing that Jews were always good people. Um, my mother used to say, you know, we're chosen people for a reason, you know, it's our responsibility to make the world better. Um, and for me, the idea that a group of Jews could do something that is of, uh, questionable morality was just not in my, uh, program at all. So, um, Discovering that, first of all, the whole history of Zionism, which is a long and complex history, did involve a very conscious effort to get rid of an indigenous Arab population that was living in Palestine. And, you know, understanding all the reasons why Jews were fleeing anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and all that stuff, but also understanding that this then created... Um, another catastrophe for another people was the most stunning uh, sort of piece of information that took a long time to get into my brain. Um, And the other thing is that now that I understand that this isn't just, you know, a problem that started in 1967 with the occupation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza, but this is actually, uh, you know, what's happening is a continuation of 1948, that there's an ongoing Dispossession and attempt to get rid of Palestinians and take land for Jews, that that's really what this is about, um, is sort of the most intense piece of this uh, conflict for me.
0: Actually, you mentioned in your book that the origins go back even further to the Sykes Pico Agreement in, Mm -hmm. I think it was 1916, 17.
1: Well, you know, the um, British and their imperialism had a whole, you know, are at fault as well.
0: <laughs> well, it was it was the British, the French, and the Russians who decided mm-hmm. to uh, lay the groundwork for the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, and the Turks had mm-hmm. really ruled the region for before many many uh, years. Right. So it was a uh, breathtaking arrogance on the part particularly of the, the French and the British, uh, in laying the plans for carving out their spheres of influence. And there was a subset of activists on behalf of the Jews, um, uh, Herbert Samuel, Chaim Weizmann, and so on, who oh, I guess were lobbying um, for Palestine uh, you know, for, for a homeland. I, mm-hmm. I think they started looking looking at Uganda and right. then went, <laughs> that would have been interesting. Right, right. And, well, you know, you there's a famous when, story that, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, go on. There, there's a famous story um, that in the late 1880s or 90s when the first uh, Zionist Congress was held, that Herzl sent a bunch of rabbis to go look at Palestine to check it out. And they um message back to him, "The bride is beautiful, but she's married to another man." So you know, these folks knew that there were people living in the land that they planned to take uh, from the very beginning. And I think that that's you know, if you read the you know the diaries of Van Gorian and that kind of thing, this is a, an, uh, was a decision that Zionists made, and I think' it's it's sort of the the bottom cause of why we are
0: where we are today. I think that's a little bit too broad brush. It's one of the causes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, but I don't think that you can ignore the Holocaust. And in fact, I don't think that you can ignore historical anti-Semitism. I, I happen to be from a family where on my mother's side, um, we were persecuted by the Inquisition. And on my father's side... Um, by the uh, by the Nazis, so mm-hmm. the the notion of anti-Semitism is very real and really Absolutely. impregnated in our DNA.
1: right, right. I completely agree with that.
0: so but the, the the question is, you know and and I think the British government actually referred to it as quote the Jewish problem unquote what do you do with these fractious Jews? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I think, you know, there was a sort of um, Christian Zionist strain in in Britain. And, you know, there were a lot of people that were very happy to get rid of the Jews and to get rid of them and put them in some other place was perfectly fine. Um, So that's part of the bit of colonialism that seeps into this whole movement. Um, But it's also combined with that European anti-Semitism. I mean, the problem for me is that the our populations were made to pay the price of european antisemitism and you know that's a problem
0: you know of course it's a problem uh, but it's not a unique problem uh, mm-hmm. people with no power have been forced to pay the price um everywhere I mean, we we mm-hmm. have our own problems here with the native americans we have our problems right. with the african americans mm-hmm. So what yeah, I, we're talking about is really a very fundamental problem of mm-hmm. power uh, over, right. over people who have no power.
1: Right. But, you know, the problem for me was that, and I don't know how you were brought up, but I was brought up with, you know, that Jews don't behave that way. And I think one of the very important things to realize is that, you know, we have our good traits and our bad traits, and we behave as well or as badly as anyone else given whatever positions of powerlessness or power that we have. And, um, you know, I think that that's a very um, uh, painful realization for many people to come to. Um, And also to also understand that after the Holocaust, there are two kinds of lessons. One is I will never let this happen to Jews again, which is a totally understandable response. But the other lesson is I will never let this happen to anyone again. And I think that, The Jewish community and I don't blame anybody for doing this but I do think the Jewish community chose as a general group that this will never happen to Jews again and everybody else gets a lesser (laughs) amount of attention and Mm -hmm. I I think that that's a problem.
0: Yeah well I remember I think it was Theodore Herzl who said that we will not have a Jewish state until even the prostitutes are Jewish And I Mm -hmm. suspect that there are a lot of them now in the government. So, Alice, you were saying before the break that as a Jew, you felt that we need to be held to a higher standard of justice and mercy. And I think that that is the mindset that is the reason why so many Jews are actually active in they were active in the 60s, in the um, civil rights campaign and they have historically been active for um, uh, civil rights of of minorities uh, of all kinds so how how do we reconcile this higher standard with the historical reality of Israel
1: well I think the first thing uh, that we need to do is to celebrate our um, role in progressive movements all over the world. And, you know, the contributions that the Jewish community has made in the world. But I think at the same time, we have to look at this sort of blind spot that happens where um, many Jews are very progressive on lots of different issues, very sympathetic to lots of different peoples. But when it comes to Palestinians, uh, you know, there, there's no ability to be empathic um, and to recognize what Israel has done to the Palestinian community. And for me, as a sort of activist, as well as a physician and a, you know, a student of history, um, it, it, it's a way, it's a, it's almost a, a, a cultural PTSD kind of behavior. I've talked with a, a number of psychiatrists about this, um, that as a culture, uh, there's a an inability to recognize uh, the person or the group that has been uh, actually that you have done what was done to you. And, you know, sort of the victim, the victim becomes the victimizer kind of syndrome. And I think that that is sort of what's going on on a, on a cultural level. Um, so for me, not only do we have to do political work, but there has to be some um, internal kind of healing within the Jewish community to be able to confront this and to, uh, make it right, because until we do that, it is just going to be ongoing uh, trouble.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And I have had numerous discussions with various relatives and found that my opinions were not really terribly welcome, primarily because of the, um, well, my the Israeli contingent are facing the real uh fears uh sometimes imagined fears but too often real fears of right. uh terrorism and they look at their own children and so on and say well you know my children are more important to me than someone else's children um, to how do you bridge that empathic gap I think your book actually goes a long way because um, explain to us how you wrote the book. I found it just heartbreaking and compelling.
1: Well, uh, the way that I wrote this book um, was that for the last six years when I've gone, I've I found each day so sort of powerful, upsetting, confusing, disturbing, uh, that the only way I could actually deal with it was to write. So every day that I was there, um, and I would generally go for two, two and a half weeks, I would, at the end of the day, I would just go and hide and write and write and write. So I ended up with many, many, many blogs, um, so blog essays that are uh Basically saying this is what I saw today, and this is the feelings that it brought up today, and this is these are the people I met today. So it's written in the present because it's written as it happens. Um, And so what I did with the book is I looked at all these blogs and I basically curated these essays. I took the most uh, powerful blogs and I also updated them and I put some together so be if they were on the same topic and that kind of thing um, to credit. and, And I also focused on the more recent blogs and also on the blogs related to Gaza, because um, I'd been in Gaza in 2005, and then I was back in 2015. Um, I just got back, but, you know, the book is already out. So there's a, a an emphasis on the realities in Gaza post-war, because people really don't have any idea about that. Um, so it's an attempt to take the reader and sort of take them on the journey with me, and to take them... To a refugee camp, or to uh, you know Haifa or Jaffa or whatever city I'm in, and and have this experience with me, um, and then I tried to weave sort of my analytic uh, stuff um, in each chapter and at the beginning at the end of the book to to help people frame uh, what I'm seeing and how I put it together historically and politically. So that's sort of how the the book evolved as a book. Um, But I am a believer that there's so much pain and so many hot-button issues that make people sort of close their minds and their hearts down that one of the ways to open people's minds and hearts is through the personal narrative. Um, And I always say, you know, you may not agree about occupation or seizure or whatever, but you can agree that every woman should have prenatal care, that women should not deliver checkpoints, that children should have enough to eat. I mean, as human beings, we can all agree on that. And then you can sort of mm-hmm. step back and say, well, if that's not happening, why? And then it, it makes it more possible to have conversations with people that otherwise might be very difficult. Um, the other thing that I would argue is that I completely understand that one's own children are the most important children in the world for oneself. Um, the question is: Is the behavior of the Israeli government actually keeping your children safe? So, for instance, you know, I was just I was posting a blog um, that I wrote on a day in Gaza with uh, a humanitarian uh, worker, um, and he was saying things like, "If the children in Gaza had clean water, how would that?" Uh, threaten Israeli security. If we were able to fish in the Mediterranean Sea and feed our people, how would that affect Israeli security? You know, all the things that are being done according to the siege are actually creating more desperate, angry, hopeless people. And so to think that that's going to somehow improve Israeli security and improve the safety of children in Israel I think is delusional. And I don't think it's any different than U.S. policy, by the way. You know, we're not any better or worse than Israeli people, but our Israeli government and our government may soon be even worse. But um, I think you have to really ask, is the behavior of the Israeli government keeping Israelis safe. And I think you could make a really strong argument that it is not. And it's not that the Palestinians are perfect, but it is true that people who are oppressed will resist oppression. We would do it, and they are doing it. And so the question is, how do you move beyond that? And I think you move beyond that by ending the occupation, ending the siege, treating people with dignity, that that's ultimately how the conflict
0: could get resolved if it's resolvable. I think there are so many levels of power and influence at work here that it very much muddies the waters. I remember post-1967 a well first of all in 1967 the feeling of Israel which at that time was was not the affluent powerhouse that you refer to today. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember visiting, and and you know we would have uh, get-togethers where we would share a bowl of, of sunflower seeds and grapefruit juice, and mm-hmm. um, the 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 median income of a full professor was sort of. What we would call a laborer here, um, and the um, feeling was after the sixty-seven war that now finally um, it that will bring the Arabs to the negotiating table and they will recognize Israel and then we can get get over this. This was the narrative of the people, the narrative mm-hmm. of of the, the pioneers, the idealists, who made Aliyah, who moved to Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, at a different level, there were the power brokers that you would call Zionist, the, the kind of uh, elite on the Israel side, but also rather cynical um, uh, leaders on the Arab side who mm-hmm. found it useful to keep that pot boiling um and and you just don't know how i mean at the people level, um I think the people have been shown over and over to want to have peace, of course, they want peace, of course, they want their children to be safe and to be fed and to be educated um, so what are the currents that you sense at a higher level keeping this pot boiling?
1: Well, I mean, currently. Yeah, I mean, currently, you know, there, first of all, I think that we need to understand that behind the scenes, there's a huge uh, military industrial prison industry complex uh, that benefits both the U.S. and Israeli um, um, corporations and global corporations um, in maintaining the status quo. So there's a huge relationship between our military and their military, you know, buying weapons, testing weapons, all that kind of stuff. And, and that um, has, there are a huge number of powerful interests that like the way things are because it's profitable. And because there's a huge amount of um, industry and global military interests that can be maintained by having uh, the current situation. Um, I do think then there is, the whole impact of Christian Zionism. I mean, there are many, many, million, million more Christian Zionists than Jews in this country who, from a very um, literal interpretation of the Bible, actually think that all Jews should go, quote, back to Israel so that there can be an apocalypse. And, you know, we're all going to die, but that's beside the point. Um, And so there's this whole um, religious um, Zionist Christian element that has a very strong pull in our Congress um, that I think is also part of this mix. Um, Then there are many, you know, the the leadership within the Arab world is not anything to be proud of. And so a lot of um, leaders within the Arab world, and, you know, I'm not prepared to go through each country and how they use Palestinians, but Palestinians are used to keep uh, the masses um, focused on something outside of the crisis that's going on within their own country. Um, so, you know, that's just a couple of things that I think keep the pot boiling. And then you add um, a very uh, a local uh, Israel lobby, which is both groups like APAC, which are sometimes to the right of the Israeli government, as well as Christian Zionists, um, that uh, really keep Congress um, very uh, under their um, control in terms of um, – supporting, you know, what is considered supporting Israel, which I would consider not supporting Israel, but, um, you know, not, let's say not criticizing the settlements. Uh, you know, just mm-hmm. the recent UN um, uh, resolution uh, criticizing the growth of settlements. I mean, it is not a radical idea that the growing Jewish settlements within the occupied territories is a blockage to any um, possibility of a peace agreement. I mean, you cannot be negotiating about a future Palestinian state while you're taking it away. That's not a radical idea. That's been part of every negotiation for two decades, you know, but this was treated like some major horrific, horrible moment and, you know, betrayal of Israel. I mean, someone is, creating that message. And that message is partly through the Israel lobby. It's partly through the Israeli government. I mean, there's a huge uh, messaging industry that frames uh, what happens in a particular way that in my brain doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, you know, there's so many forces going on, um, not to mention, you know, what's going on in terms of our military adventures <laughs> in the Middle East. Uh, the Arab Spring. I mean, all of these things then contribute to uh, creating a very unstable situation that can be used and abused by leaders in different countries according to what they want their populations to believe.
0: Well, I was encouraged to hear on the news today that the Israeli Supreme Court actually has declared a, uh, a Jewish settlement in the territories to be illegal and ordered it to be demolished. Uh, I don't know whether
1: that's the yeah. This, yeah, this happens over and over again. I mean, if you look at the actual um, history of this kind of behavior, first of all, according to international law, all settlements are illegal. So this is an interesting use of language and, you know, deciding what's an illegal settlement and what's an illegal illegal settlement is an interesting uh, framing for me. Um, But if you look at what often happens is that, first of all, the military doesn't always respect what the courts say, and the settlers don't respect, you know, the the more right-wing settlers don't respect anybody. So, you know, there's a sort of cat-and-mouse game that happens where a, a, a little caravan will be dismantled, and then they pop up somewhere else, and then, you know, and then 10 years later, they get their permit, and then there's a big settlement. So, you know, I think that's very nice that the courts did that, but I don't have a huge hope that that's some major breakthrough, because at the same time, Netanyahu is giving all this permission to build, you know, thousands of houses in different settlements. And Bennett, the the educational minister, is talking about wanting to annex one of the larger settlements and perhaps all of Area C, which is 65 percent of the West Bank. So, you know, there are these little moments. But if you look at the big context, the big context is a desire to take as much of the West Bank as the Israeli government can get away with, and with as few Palestinians in it. And that's not conducive to um, a viable future for anybody. Else.
0: Well, certainly when I lived in Israel, I was uh, excruciatingly embarrassed when we would go through checkpoints and you would see um, cars with Arab license plates pulled over to the side Alice, what is the um, URL for your blog?
1: Well, I have a website that is called AliceRothschild.com, and if you go to the website, there's a header for blogs, and there are all my blogs. And what I'm doing um, now is uh, I, I didn't post my blogs in real time this January, um, partly because uh, the sort of right-wing security apparatus in Israel is getting more and more uh, freaky for me. Uh, so I decided to wait till I got home and then post the blog. So every day I'm posting a blog. I'm up to blog number 11. Um, and, you know, all the blogs from previous years are also there by year. So it's it's all on my website, AliceRothchild.com. And then some of the blogs are being picked up by Just World Books and by Mondo Weiss. But all of them are mm-hmm. on my website.
0: And we might add that she spells Rothschild R O T H C H I L D. Right. No S. Yeah, my my
1: uh, my grandfather lost the S on Ellis Island. You know, they they Americanized immigrant names, so somehow the S mm-hmm. got lost. And we're not from the rich family; we're from
0: the sten family. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. So I uh, would like you to. Give us a flavor of some of the interactions in your book because they make it so personal.
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, is there any particular chapter you have in mind? I mean, I'm, I uh, let's see. Well, um, there was. I mean, there was a. There's a um, an essay about being in uh, the IDA refugee camp in Bethlehem. You know, staying with a family you know with and they have um a whole bunch of kids including a boy with severe uh cerebral palsy uh probably from birth um you know uh, hypoxia from birth lack of oxygen at birth and uh issues relating to access to care that are related to being under occupation um so we were with this family uh there was you know a little uh, there was a time when the um Israeli soldiers were coming in every night and tear gas in the place and you know, the kids would get up and throw rocks at the, at the tanks. And so there were skirmishes going on in the camp. And we were with, um, the husband of this, uh, the woman that was, that we were, well, we, the husband in the family. And he had, uh, like, uh, 40% of Palestinian men spent time in Israeli jails. And that's a whole nother, uh, story. Um, but when he was, uh, released, he, uh, his prison sentence, Said that he had to stay in the Bethlehem, in Bethlehem for his entire life. So he was basically stuck in Bethlehem where the camp was. And you know, he was talking to us about how he wants his kids to be safe and how he wants them to get a good education. And meanwhile, there's tear gas going by and there's Graffiti on the walls and it's, uh, you know, a dove with a, a key coming out of its mouth symbolic of right of return. And there's all this sort of yearning and history in the camp. Um, and then we have this cooking class with his wife who, uh, runs a, a little, um, sort of business for internationals teaching them to cook fabulous Palestinian food. And that is how they raise money for their kid who has cerebral palsy who's, uh, basically spends his days Sitting in a um, a chair that's like from a car, and they have it suspended in their house. So he's 14 years old. He's a big kid, so they have him in this chair, and he's you know squawking and making noises and the family adores him and nurtures him and takes care of him with almost no resources. Um, and there we are cooking makluba and you know, cutting up cauliflower and making basbousa and learning all these different tricks for Palestinian food. And then we have this meal um with the family and we're all sitting in this big open room. Uh the sun is brought in and the kids are feeding him like he's a little bird. Um, and we're talking about, you know, their life and their, the husband's um, brother and wife had been killed by the Israeli soldiers. Um, it was just full of trauma, poignancy, love, food, you know, all happening at the same time. And at the end of the stay, I, I uh, sat down with the grandmother who was eating her baklava, and she just started to cry. And I just put my arms around her, and she's crying, and I'm holding her. And, you know, this woman has been through so much. And you know, what can I say? You know all I can do is hold her i you know we don't speak the same language, but we 're both mothers um you know her some of her children have been killed uh you know she has this very um damaged uh grandchild, and you know her life is not uh the life she had planned us you know um or that she deserved and you know. What I could tell is that she knew that there was that she was not going to see any justice done um, within her lifetime, and that basically there had been just a lot of suffering and perseverance in her lifetime, and it was very uh, powerful for me to understand. Uh, the refugee experience and what it's like to have three generations of refugees in a camp and people trying to do right by their children and get them to go to college and uh, have a better life. And meanwhile, there's all this trauma and all this um, sort of institutional uh, militarization of the occupiers so that, you know, it's not surprising to me that a 12 year old picks up a stone and throws it at a tank. I mean, The only Israelis this kid has ever met are soldiers who have basically made his life miserable and, you know, oppressed people will resist. And meanwhile, I know that if the kid is caught, you know, throwing a a stone at a tank is, you know, this is um, tried under military court. This is a major offense. This can result in five, ten years of imprisonment. And there are a huge number of children that have been through the Israeli prison system. And, you know, so you just see this very vividly in how it, it's sort of a circle of, um, you know, violence and then resistance and punishment and deprivation and perseverance. and But it's all very real when you're sitting in someone's home and, you know, eating chicken. <laughs> um, so that's just yeah. one vignette in the book. Um, and this time when I was in... Uh, in the region, I actually got to go to the prison where the kids are sent. Um, And it was an amazing experience to, first of all, be in this big open uh, sort of court that, you know, surrounded by barbed wire where the families are waiting um, for their moment to see their imprisoned sons. Um, And, you know they're told what day it is, but they don't know what time, so they just sit and wait all day and smoke and wait and You know the lawyers come through, and sometimes the lawyers have met the prisoner beforehand, and sometimes they haven't um and We got to go into one of the courts they're just caravans or seven caravans, and it was really um sort of a stunning experience because it was a row of young men in shackles. Um, there was the um, military judge and the transcriber and the military prosecutor who's not actually a trained lawyer but just knows military law. And then all these lawyers milling about trying to make deals for their, um, their clients. And, you know, there's not like a real trial. It's not like evidence is produced or something like that. And it all happens very quickly, and it's all completely banal. I mean, no one stops and says, is it appropriate for a kid who threw a stone at a tank to go to jail for 10 years? You know, that's, that's not under question. Um, and so it, it was a very, uh, the banality of it was very painful for me to see. And also, you know, a good day for these families is, you know, the kid only gets five years rather than 10 years. You know, it's not, uh, no one can step back and say, you know, what is military justice and what does it mean to live under occupation and what is resistance? No one can ask those bigger questions. You know, they're, they're all focused on, you know, can I touch his hand before he gets carted off again? Um, so it was a very amazing moment, you know, to be put in the context of all the other experiences I've had around, um, military justice and, uh, the attempts to, to resist the occupation, which is ongoing.
0: I remember Golda Meir said <laughs> in the last century that I can forgive the Arabs for killing my children, but I will never forgive them for turning my children into killers. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I find that a highly offensive statement. Um, I, you know, it, it's a way of framing uh, this particular issue that is pretty appalling, um, you know, the, she and Israeli leadership and made a decision to dispossess 750,000 people and destroy 500 villages. And then they go and blame the victim. It's sort of a stunning framing for me in a very complicated piece of history.
0: Complicated indeed. So, Alice, you just returned back from uh, Israel-Palestine. Uh, What did you see in your latest visit? Um, Is there any progress or are things just getting worse?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, things are getting worse. Um, In Israel, there is a move to the right that continues and there's a move to um, separate and demonize Palestinians, both within Israel and between Israel and the occupied territories. Uh, So, I think things are getting worse in general. Um, if I just think about the West Bank, um, it's, the conditions are more and more restrictive. Uh, there is, um, a bigger sense of hopelessness about any, you know, possible future. Um, and so the conditions are definitely worse in the West Bank. And in Gaza, you know, they're not as bad as they were in 2015 right after a devastating war. But it means that it went from totally terrible to just slightly totally terrible. So, in for instance, in Gaza, um, people don't have regular electricity. Sometimes it's on for four hours, sometimes six hours, sometimes 12 hours. It's totally erratic. And um, there's still tens of thousands of people who have not had their homes rebuilt. Um, There's still... um, Fresh sewage pouring into the Mediterranean because the treatment plants were bombed, and there's very little functional infrastructure I mean all of that is still terrible now when you, when I talked to people you know two years ago in two thousand and fifteen people were the first thing they had to tell you tell me was what happened during the war, so I got an outpouring of these incredibly painful, frightening stories of people who survived the war and often had many, many family members who did not survive. Now, that's not the first thing that people talk about. It does come up after a while, after, you know, the no electricity and the lack of housing and the traumatized children and all the things that are sort of ongoing, um, and the, you know, massive unemployment um, and the totally dysfunctional lack of civil, you know, governmental society and structure, uh, but then the war comes up after that, so it's generally worse. Um, and so it's a pretty uh, disturbing and troubling place to visit. And in the midst of all of this, I meet incredible people. And so there's this disjunction between uh, the resilient, incredible people and the fact that the facts on the ground are getting worse. Now, for Jewish Israelis, it's a whole different kind of experience because, you know, it's a complicated society. There are, um, you know, Ashkenazi elite type um, Jewish Israelis who are actually doing quite well. Uh, there's a big divide between the Mizrahi uh, Israelis and the Ashkenazi Israelis. There's a lot of, you know, endemic racism within Jewish society as well as towards the 20% of Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship. Um, or 20% of Israeli citizens who are Palestinian. I mean, it's a very complicated society itself and there are huge questions about uh the you know, loss of the safety net and the rising price of living and the lack of housing and all those issues are going on within Israeli society that have nothing or have not nothing to do with occupation, but are, are an issue for, for the, the country itself. Um, I think Everything has to do with the occupation because of the huge military budget and because uh, the settlements are very costly to uh, the state uh, because they subsidize the settlements along with all the military support that they get. So everything I think ultimately is related to the fact of occupation, but that's not obvious to people who are, you know, troubled about the fact that their medical co-pays have gone up and they can't find good housing and all the usual things that people worry about just trying to live their lives. Um, one of the very interesting things that happened was um you know there's been this sort of steady uh, uh um, numbers of people who have basically been uh I would call it extrajudicial extra extrajudicial assassination. So um you know, people uh Palestinians who have been shot by Israeli soldiers. Um and so there had been there is a whole move to displace Bedouins who live in the Negev who are Israeli citizens and uh, to destroy their villages, so uh, one of the villages had been uh, that the troops had come in to destroy the village and there had been um, a Bedouin who was a very esteemed teacher, he was a father of twelve uh, he was a nonviolent person and he was literally driving away from the demolition and he was shot by an Israeli soldier, and his car lost control and hit. Up Israeli policeman and killed him. And this was framed by the Israeli government as, you know, an ISIS terrorist uh, kills, you know, rams an Israeli mm-hmm. policeman, yeah. yada, yada, yada. But this video to show that it actually didn't happen that way. So I actually, I went to a protest in Jaffa um, the next day, and it was fascinating because the protest was in Arabic. So it was Arab citizens of Israel having a protest about this killing, and it was young people. And... Um, Young people uh, finding their voice is a new a sort of a new phenomenon and being public about it um, was very interesting to me to witness. There were some, you know, old lefty Jewish Israelis there, but mostly it was young uh, citizens of Jaffa, um, where there's a big Palestinian population, you know, just saying, you know, no to these kind of killings. And that was that was a new uh, new piece for me uh because the israeli left is um pretty marginalized and the israeli arab left um is you know continuously under attack and has a lot of trouble you know getting itself together and being brave enough to face the forces that it has to face within the society so that was that was different um but you know an israeli uh, a palestinian uh, uh, member of the knesset was shot in the head in one of these demonstrations and so it's like those folks are under tremendous attack and don't get a lot of sympathy from the Jewish-Israeli society.
0: Mm. Well, don't forget that Yitzhak Rabin was also shot in the head. Right. Anyway. Right. Um, so, um, by the Israelis. Um, right. By the Israeli right. Like I said, now, it's a very complex society <laughs> it's, with a lot of different forces. Oh, <laughs> Uh, did did you see any um, movement on uh, among um, Israeli Jewish supporters of the Palestinian cause? Is that faction growing at all?
1: Um, that's a pretty marginalized group. I don't think it's growing. Um, you know, I met a couple of people from that part of the society, but that's a very marginalized group. Um, you know I did meet with um, uh, Physicians for Human Rights Israel which is a totally inspirational uh, group for me since I'm a physician and these are physicians and other healthcare workers who do extraordinary work. Um, not only uh, do they do work in the occupied territories but they also do work within Israel with uh, you know people who are marginalized, who can't afford health care, people who are undocumented, um, people who are in prison. I mean they do attend to all the um, disenfranchised within Israel as well as within the occupied territory. So they're a phenomenal group, and they continue to do the work. They're also very unpopular within general Israeli society. Um, so, you know, you have those moments of inspiration, um, but they're certainly not the dominant voice uh, mm-hmm. within society. The dominant voice is really turning to the right.
0: Well, I get the sense that this is just part of a global shift to the right. We see it mm-hmm. in Europe, we see it in America, and right. I'm wondering if it just has to get so so bad that we all wake up to our essential connectedness. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know
1: what's going to make us all wake up. I mean, one of the things that I find very um, inspirational is the uh, boycott divestment sanction movement that was uh, called in 2005 um, because, you know, people often attack me for this. And I say, look, you know, when Palestinians resist violently, they're attacked and here they're resisting nonviolently. So you can't, you know, you can't have it both ways. So I think that that is um, a movement that is going to put more and more political pressure on the Israeli government, and it's a nonviolent movement, and it's an international movement. So that is a little piece that I think is very inspirational. You know, I I think, of course, all of the moves to the right are interconnected in this universe that we live in. But I do think, you know, even looking in the U.S., I mean, we have to remember that Trump was elected by something like 20 percent, 25 percent of the population. So it's not like the majority of Americans have moved to the Trumpian universe. Um, I I think it's important to look at, you know, what's happening in, in each individual country where racism and intolerance and all those kinds of things are erupting with tremendous force, but also to look at what happened in each country. So in our country, you know, he was elected by the Electoral College, not by the American people. Um, I think it's important to remember that and also to be inspired by the massive amount of demonstrations and petitions and all the things that are going on uh, that show that, you know, there are huge numbers of Americans that are very um, unhappy with the direction he's taking the country, and that's where our inspiration should come from.
0: I think another source of inspiration you cover very well in your book, which is the incredible resilience and goodness of so many Palestinian people um, coming back. And even though they could um, find their own homes in the West, you know, professionals, medical doctors and and uh, other kinds of professionals, they choose to stay in the Gaza, uh, what really yeah, is yeah. a concentration camp. Right, uh, right. And, and yeah, I mean, that's work for other amazing, people. Amazing, yeah. Right. I mean,
1: there is overall a massive brain drain. You know, people who can get out tend to want to get out. But there are also people who are dedicated, who stay and are enormously
0: resilient. And again, I think that's they're very inspirational as well. And the other thing we don't focus on are the real stories that you tell in your book of everyday uh living and and struggle to to overcome mm-hmm. PTSD to to raise your children you know and, and enable them to um somehow transcend the horror and the ugliness they see around them all the time right through right. art therapy through music therapy and theater therapy and so on Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
1: also it's the depressing. family structure um, is very powerful yeah Oh, it's mm-hmm. very depressing. And it's very, I mean, I always come home kind of with my own little private PTSD syndrome, uh, because it's its sort of stunning that this is going on. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of things, for instance, in our own country, you know, the racism within our own country, uh, what's going on for, you know, children in urban settings uh, that are poor and that suffer from institutional racism. I mean, we all have to deal with these kinds of Struggles, And for some places, it's much more extreme, like in Gaza. Um, But it's not, you know, it's stuff that we all have to be dealing with.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that's our show for today. Alice, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. We've been speaking with Alice Rothschild, alicerothschild.com, about her book, Condition Critical. I hope you'll join us next week. Thank you for listening. I'm weary of dying. Many blessings. Goodbye.